Congratulations! You found it! The most inappropriate book club you never knew you were missing! Starring the original book divas Martha Steele and Vonnie Golden, and also featuring Megan Runyon, YA superfan, Keith Steigert, Uber Reader and Romance Junkie, Pat Greiner, she has the head of an English major and the heart of a sci fi nerd. These people are passionate about books. Maybe a little too passionate. Plotting world domination one book at a time. They are three book girls. Lazy girl jobs. What what are they considering a lazy girl job? Well, here's the problem that I have with it. It's any job in which you go to work at a certain time and come home at a certain time and don't overwork or take your work home with you. And that is the stupidest definition I've ever heard of. That's called setting boundaries. Yes, it's any job where you set a boundary, which is dumb because A, you shouldn't call it a lazy girl job. Honestly, in my opinion, I thought lazy girl jobs were those jobs where other people didn't think they were actual jobs, like content creator, that kind of thing. Now, Uh I understand that that takes an awful lot of work. And you do it from home. They're saying, oh. The woman they're talking about in the article is a content creator. Yes. Yes. She wrote the article. But she's talking like, oh, this is any job where, see, we're Gen Z and we create healthy boundaries between like work and play. And I'm like, dude, you're not new. What the freaking shit? Like, that's not new. You guys have been setting boundaries on jobs since we started in the work field. Yeah. Honestly, I think I think that the boomer generation got a little I mean, they up until that generation, they worked really, really hard and they put in way too many hours for way too little pay. And then after that, I feel like people started saying, you know what, we're not going to do this anymore. And with the exception of a few jobs, it pretty much became more normalized to leave your work at work and have a home life. I worked my ass off and I look at the people who were who came in who were younger than me and went, they don't give a fuck. They are not a benefit to this company. (laughs) Honestly, Pat, I'm on your team because work ethic meant something different when we were growing up. I'm not a boomer. I'm actually a Gen Xer. But I was always told you give 110 percent always. Mm-hmm. And you don't say that's not my job, stuff like that. And the new generation, they don't work that way. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just a different attitude about work. Well, that's not even what the article's talking about, because no. I totally get you with that. Like, I agree that the work ethic is very different beyond like some I of the I think that's what the issue is, though. It has to do with work ethic, not necessarily... Um, quiet quitting or, you know, any of these other things. It has to do with... No, but the the article saying if you set a boundary and, like, work your required hours that they're calling those lazy girl jobs. I I wish they would just stop talking. No, I'm sorry. That's my bad. I sent my husband a message asking if he was going to come home tonight and he's like, I've been home for an hour. Oh, God. (laughs) I guess I posted it. I didn't put it in the... Oh, the books. The books. It was talking about overconsumption of books and if that was a good thing or not. Basically, it's an article 
that's from Book Riot that talks about the way we consume books, how buying all the books you see advertised to you or all of the books that are hyped to you by your friends and family. Now, Megan, you see a lot of books on Book Talk and on, you know, some of the other apps that you look yeah. at. And they sound really good and you get really excited about it. And do you go right out and buy it? It depends. If it's like an author that is like a must buy for me, like if I have missed an announcement of like a book coming out and someone's like, hey, like Allie Hazelwood has a new book out, I will immediately like jump on and order it because she's a must buy for me. But if it's somebody that I maybe don't know as well, it, I, I might look at where my expenses are. Now, I'm kicking myself because I didn't jump at Fourth Wing, and now you can't get that damn book any freaking where. And I don't know. People have loved it that have read it. I've also, somebody else on Book Talk just the other day, it was like, this book is not worth the hype. So, But the consistent message, even from like the Squad Girls, is that it was really good. But it had this fancy, like, first edition, like, sprayed edges and, like, all this cool stuff. And then once it got buzzy, like, good luck. You couldn't, couldn't get it anywhere. So sometimes I think book talk does get in a rut where, like, they only, re like, the same authors just keep coming up. But then, like, yesterday, the girl that actually was talking about the fact that she didn't care for Fourth Wing, I stuck around to see what she, books she wanted to recommend that were, like, not hyped that should be. And some of the ones she recommended, I was like, hey, I've never heard of these, but they look amazing. So I made sure I like favorited her video because I was like, I might need to go back and like check these out. So I think when you get a voice that's different, that's not recommending like Sarah J. Moss over and over and over again. Well, I'm just... I listen to those people more <laughs> because they're not reading what everybody else is reading. Right. The article was trying to say that they think that a lot of people go out and buy books to read them. But I don't think that's true anymore. Because no. we have e-readers, we have libraries. I think that they were- Well, they talked think, about that too. They talked about libraries. This article, right. if you're interested, was on Book Riot. But I thought it was interesting. They were giving the suggestion of libraries. And I don't, I, like that's new. Like, you no. know what I mean? Yeah, <laughs> I get it. Because that's the way I read, but- I found it interesting to look at the possibility that people were making book purchases based solely on recommendations and then regretting having purchased all these books and then they have all these books and then they don't know what to do with them. And yeah, I there's, don't think so that's there's a true so much anymore. I really don't. Now, when people first started like buying lots of books for their zoom background well, yeah like yeah i'm, I'm already... not talking about that i'm talking about the recommendation but, but, I think but i think that could be a carryover like they were bored at home sitting where they you know were i mean i have my bookshelf behind me but i already owned almost uh, most of these but you know they're sitting at home they're on online on tiktok and all of a sudden they stumble across book talk and they're like oh i'll look really cool if i have like all these books that people recommended behind me and then now they're like oh well like now that i'm back to normal life I have yeah right right. It's like so that could... thing we talked about with the people who bought all those books to stage a house for yep. sale and then returned yeah. them and really screwed the bookshop over. Yeah, yeah. Which is dumb because have you ever gone to a Goodwill? I mean, you could get a billion books for like yeah, but yeah. none of those. I mean, if you're like, really trying to be a book? if you're trying to be a poser, 
then it's obvious because if you've ever been to a Goodwill, you know what kind of books you find at a Goodwill and it's not good books. <laughs> it's always Twilight, Hunger yep. Games. <laughs> um, Reader's Digest, dense books. Mem- memoirs the- of of TV preachers and, you know, all the stuff that your grandparents purchased and had to, well, you know what I mean? It's like people who were trying find to- find gems though. Yeah, you the do. The thing I took exception to in that article was the, the, the part that said you should have a collecting philosophy. I said not, not having a collecting philosophy for books is like not having a personal style in your clothing. Well, maybe I lack personal style in my clothing too, but I think if you limit yourself to your collecting philosophy, you're gonna miss a lot of interesting stuff. I I like intentionally going outside of my mm-hmm. comfort zone. Personally, what I thought the the author was trying to say is that if you buy every single thing that you find attractive, then you'll be in the poorhouse before you know it. There are yes, other I mean, options. There are other <laughs> options for that. And I think when she was talking about, you know, you can go to the library and, you know, read the books and then decide to collect them. Or, True. you know, you can get used books. She went through a bunch of different options. The idea for me of a collecting philosophy was established over many years of buying books, getting them home, and realizing they were not good books. And it's frustrating because if you spend 25 or $30 on a brand new book and it's a sucky book, it kind of ruins sure. it for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I very I have, rarely I buy books ever... that I haven't read first. Or if I haven't read them, I know the authors and it's one of those authors that I've read and I know that I like their writing style, whatever, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I, I I don't understand just going out and buying a book because you saw it on TikTok. But I can't imagine that a whole lot of people do that. I don't know. It'd be curious. to. Oh, I, I can see Megan. Megan. <laughs> and she, Megan's a cover buyer. She buys books based on what the cover is. Like, yes, I buy based on cover, but I'm also very selective. Like, if I catch myself, like, if I pick it up and I read the, like, dust jacket, and I'm like, this sounds like every other book I've ever read. If it's not one that's been specifically recommended by somebody I will probably leave it like if it's too much of the same trope like if I find myself in a like trope rut so like I'm pretty picky when I do buy books like Mm -hmm. I have to be really sure that like this book sounds great or sounds like it'll be really good now I've bought some bombs do not get me wrong we all have where you and I, I get what Pat's saying too is that when you're roaming a bookstore in the wild and you, you find something that looks really interesting and maybe you read a couple of pages in the front and you go, okay. I mean, the freedom to be able to do that to a certain extent is freeing. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, like, I have a couple, I have a pile in my guest bedroom that is the, hey, next time you remember to look, look up where a free library is, take these with you because you're never going to read them. And then there, I have a set which is not that controversial. The the Vampire Diaries I bought a million years ago when the show first came out, and they've changed the characters yeah, so much. We've talked about that specific thing. Yeah, yeah. they're they're sitting right here, and I just I don't have the heart to give them away because I keep thinking if I give it enough distance, because I have the whole series, and I feel like I have to read them. <laughs> Mentioning free little libraries though reminds we have had a weird 
I don't, you can't really call it a crime spree, but a weird series of happenings in Casper. People have, well, I don't know if it's even people. They they caught video from somebody's doorbell camera of one person, it was a woman, that someone has been raiding the free little libraries and cleaning them out, taking every book out of them and dissipate. Happened to a friend of Martha's and mine, Susan Burke. Yeah, has I saw that, yeah. Little library. And hers got cleaned out and she posted about that. And I think they found at least three or four, maybe five or six others in town. And they, I mean, you can't really report it as a crime because the books are free, mm -hmm. but it's certainly counter to the spirit of the thing to for somebody to just come and, and so there's been a lot of debate as to whether it might be somebody, somebody who thinks that you know, like a Moms for Liberty type who yep, thinks that yep, that's what I was just books in there. I or, was just yeah. gonna say it might be somebody who doesn't think you should be able to read those books, or you know, I mean, I've very many yeah. times caught myself seeing books that I fervently disagree with that I just want to remove or turn <laughs> over in the bookstore. I mean, I've done it. I'll admit. I've done it, but I haven't actually like removed them all from other people's reach. <laughs> but it's just a, it's a very weird sort of crime. Megan, we can't hear you. <laughs> ah, I muted. Sorry. Cause I was coughing. Uh, well, and there was another book podcast that I listened to that they were talking about, like this girl, a listener wrote in and she was like, I don't know what to do. Cause I feel like, there's harmful books and it was not one of those like mothers for liberty type people like that was you know writing and saying like these the lgbtq books shouldn't be in here it was somebody being like there's kind of some hateful books in these libraries but i feel like i can't take them out because it's not my place but like i don't know like i feel like i shouldn't leave them for people to find but like i don't want to impose my feelings on those books like and it was like yeah that's they hard. couldn't come to like an agreement on well, on, because like, it's all that it, because when you when you read a book, it's relative to your opinion on whether you like it or not, or whether you feel it's appropriate or not. And it is hard, which is why you have so many books that are challenged in libraries. I don't know. We we're not going to solve this today. Why don't we review some books? What? It, it, it's a conundrum. We're never going to solve the. Uh, whoever if I, if I figure out which free little library I want to go put all my books in if you live in in the area of where I live you may find some true crime ones that you might enjoy and just know they're awful <laughs> just know these they're really sucked and that's why I they're wanted. in here yeah I mean like yeah. Su Susan's po point was that she personally curated her books that she put in there of things that she had liked that she thought other people might like and I think that it's a danger when you become too attached to a situation like yeah. that. Because when you put it out there, there's no guarantee. It's like no. you, you have to let go of it once it's out there. You're not, those books aren't for you once they're put out there. That's true. Yep. But Pat, would you, was, wasn't there another, it wasn't little free libraries, but it was, what was Book crossings, was that it? Where you were supposed to just like leave books in public places for oh, other people to find? Oh, yeah, book there fairies. was a, there was a, like a, like um, a bunch of celebrities doing that on the subway. Well, and there was a group called Book Fairies and you would put a little 
sticker like in yeah, the book. Yeah. Book crossings had too that yeah, had some huh. you could print download and print out and book crossing is the act of releasing your books into the wild for a stranger to find or via controlled release to another book crossing member and tracking where they go via journal entries from around the world. Huh. So it's like geocaching, but for books. Yeah, but That's for books. what I was thinking. Yeah. Interesting. Well, that would be interesting. If, if any of our uh, book squad members, meaning if you're listening, that would be you, has an experience with that, we would really like to hear about it. I mean, that sounds super fun. All right. So let's switch gears a little bit here. Today, we're going to start with Megan. So this week, I read The Ruby's Curse by Alex Kingston with Jacqueline Rayner. And if Alex Kingston's name sounds familiar, it's because you're a Doctor Who fan and you know her best as River Song. And this book is exactly what you're hoping I'm going to tell you that it is. It is a book about River Song and it is also about Melody Malone. Because if you follow Doctor Who, you know that River Song and Melody Malone are actually the same person. It's it, Melody Malone is uh, the author name that River uses in the 1930s and is writing like murder mystery books. And if you're that far behind on Doctor Who, sorry, spoilers said in River Song's voice. So this book starts off and it is, we have River and she's trying to write her next Melody Malone book. And we know that River is a little bit timey-wimey, wibbly-wobbly in the world of Doctor Who. She comes in and out of time and weird places, and you just, like, never quite know what order that she's in versus where everybody else is. And she, at one point in the series, spoilers, is in jail because she's committed lots of crimes, and she's very dangerous. So she is, you know, doing her river song, bouncing around in time. And she's like, you know, I really just need to concentrate and finish my next book because my publisher is breathing down my neck. And she thinks the only place that she's going to get peace and quiet is if she breaks back into her own jail cell (laughs) that is currently empty because she has broken out of it at a different time in the timeline and can get peace and quiet there and finish her book and then break back out is her plan. Because she vaguely knows when and where in the timeline she is because she's River Song and she's just magic, kind of like that. So she breaks into her jail cell, or back into her jail cell, and she makes a friend because she hears, realizes she can hear somebody through the air vent. So she's talking to this other prisoner, and he's pretty new, and she's trying to, like, you know, tell him, hey, it's going to suck, but it's going to be fine. Because they're in, like, maximum security prison in, like, the year 5000 and something. I forget what. But 5147 is the year that she's in jail. And she ends up starting to read the book to him as they're in in prison together. She's reading it like through the air vent. And he's telling her how he ended up there and what he's done to get there. And she and they end up someone comes and kind of raids the jail to get to them. They've heard the story through other chains because he had this ruby or this thing i think it was a ruby um that basically if you hold it you are all powerful and can pretty much destroy the world because it's doctor who and they are always trying to destroy the world and so she helps break him out of jail to try to like save him and she ends up going through different times and she's still writing her melody malone story but the story keeps changing on her like all of a sudden you'll be reading in a chapter and there's like a new character and you're like where the hell who's phil 
Like, where did Phil come from in this story? There was no Phil. And so the story keeps getting changed. And as she's realizing why it's getting changed and there's like clues, she's almost in like two places at the same time. It's kind of hard. It's wibbly wobbly, people. It's River Song. So she is kind of living in her book, but also like in current time. So like her book characters are all of a sudden kind of real. And she has to keep reminding herself like, oh, I'm in the book. Like, I'm not actually in my timeline. Like, I'm now part of the book. And she's trying to solve these clues to find this ruby, which has was the center of her story originally, was this missing ruby and someone gets murdered trying to, like, have this ruby from Egypt and there's, like, a code. That was the plot line of the book she was writing. And so now the book has almost become real and she's bouncing around in time and she's going to see... Cleopatra and Caesar and she's trying to figure out how to find the ruby to go back so like it can't get stolen later and it it was honestly I was very confused a lot of the time it was well done because you're supposed to be confused you're supposed to I think it took me a while to process I'm glad I finished it last night so I could kind of process what I read because I was like I originally read it and I was like this was weird I don't know how like I feel about this book but I think you're supposed to be in River's shoes the most. So you're confused along with her because you're reading it like, oh yeah, okay, we're back into the Melody Malone story. And all of a sudden it's like, Melody and whoever and Phil. And you're like, who the fuck is Phil? And then like a couple of paragraphs later, River catches up to you and she's like, who's Phil? I didn't write a Phil. <laughs> so it's kind of fun to follow, although kind of confusing. For if you need a little like Doctor Who fix until we get the new season, whenever that may be now, God only knows. I recommend it. It was pretty good. I think I only gave it three stars, but I'd say like three and a half. Because it's Alex Kingston. And I should have looked up if she reads the audio. Because if she reads the audio, I bet it's like even better than just reading the physical book because she just has a great voice. But yeah. And her and I share a birthday, and I always feel like that's super special to me. <laughs> that Actually, her, John Bowerman, and myself are all born on the same day. So I every year on my birthday, I'm like, oh, two of the coolest people from Doctor Who and I share a birthday. So that always makes me happy. Because what are the odds? So yeah, if you want to have a wibbly-wobbly Egypt adventure, I would recommend The Ruby's Curse by Alex Kingston with Jacqueline Rayner. Awesome. Pat, Just you can go. Okay, so I read, actually, this uh, last week, I read two books by the same author, uh, and I'm going to focus on the one that I think was the better one. I went into the world of legal thrillers and went back to the guy who is credited with creating the modern legal thriller, Scott Turow. Oh. Scott Turow was writing these things before John Grisham was, just by a couple of years, and a, a good friend of mine happened to ask me if I'd ever read any of his. She was like, they're a, they're just exponentially better than Grisham. And I'd read some Grishams and enjoyed them well enough. Although here I think is the telling point. I couldn't tell you even which Grishams I read or what at the plot was of any of them. They are disposable. <laughs> they're, they were enjoyable going down, but you don't remember <laughs> Do like, not come for us, John Grisham fans. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah like I think eating you're... salted peanuts. You yeah, know? yeah, you're opening yourself up there, Pat. But go ahead. 
Okay, before I forget, let me say that the book that I'm going to review is his first book. It's called Presumed Innocent by Scott oh, Turow. Love that one. So I went back and I looked up the interplays, John Grisham versus Scott Turow. What's the difference? And found an interview with Scott Turow on the occasion of his having received a literary award. And he said he had this quote, and this is this is just marvelous. This is snarkiness really embodied. <laughs> John sells more books, and I have better reviews, Thoreau says. John's a wonderful storyteller and a wonderful guy. He has a much wider readership than I do. He's happy to be read by people in junior high school. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. He's not wrong. Yeah, yeah. he's not wrong, yeah. Yeah, and finishes by saying, I'm trying to write serious novels that don't have as broad an appeal. So... Cool. He's um, definitely way legaler. Yes. They are <laughs> although both of them were attorneys, you get a lot more into the mind of the attorneys mm -hmm. in Presumed Innocent. Plus it has a pretty good plot twist at the end. Although I kind of guessed it coming up on it, but I think only because people have and this book was written almost forty years ago. It was nineteen eighty seven. So I think people have taken his plot twist and reused it and recycled it in lots of other books, which makes it a little easier to guess that it might be coming. But Presumed Innocent focuses on a prosecuting attorney in Kindle County, which is a thinly disguised Chicago. At the beginning of the book, you find out that the deputy prosecuting attorney, the one we're following as our main character, Rusty Savage, Rusty's has a colleague, a, a woman who is also a, an assistant prosecuting attorney, and she has been murdered. It looks, the way they find the body, it looks very much like this was a rape and murder. She is trussed up, she's been hit over the head. And the other thing that's going on at the same time is that his boss, the overseeing uh, prosecuting attorney who oversees like 90 of these deputy attorneys, is in the midst of an election race to retain his job. So he asks Rusty to take on this case because it's it's gotten a lot of publicity. It's been a buzzy kind of case because of the circumstances in which she was found. And so he asks Rusty to oversee this investigation. What he does not know at the time is that Rusty and this woman, Carolyn, was the, the name of the murder victim, Rusty and Carolyn had an affair about six months before and managed to keep it reasonably quiet in the office. Well, as things go along, Rusty pretty quickly finds out the evidence is gathered and examined. Well, they find semen in her and it's his. It is. <laughs> and they find a, bar, a glass on the bar in her apartment and it's got his fingerprints on it. Things are not looking really good for Rusty. And by the by the time you're a third of the way into the book, he has gone from being the lead investigator to being the accused, and he is on trial. But there are so many intricacies in this book. There are the relationships amongst the various prosecutors, competitions and, and backstabbing at work. There's a lot of corruption 
There's corruption amongst the cops. There's corruption amongst the judges. There's corruption amongst the attorneys. And figuring out whose corruption is going to affect what they do and how they can be manipulated. Uh, you truly do not know who to trust in this particular book. He also does a really good job of portraying uh, Rusty's home life. He and his wife are, they're not at each other's throats, but it's been a long time since it was really a happy and loving marriage either. It's got various stresses and strains. She is pursuing a graduate degree in mathematics and she's gone a lot because of that. Uh, the relationship he had with Carolyn, you don't know quite how much, at, at first you don't know how much his wife knew, whether anything, whether the whole deal, whatever, about what his relationship was with this other woman. It is truly, truly intricate. And I did, actually, I had a moment less than halfway into the book where I put it down and I said, I am not going to read this because I did not like its view of women. I thought, I, I wasn't sure. I picked it up again because I said, I'm not sure who the misogynist is here. I'm not sure if it's the author or if it's the character whose point of view we are seeing things from. But at that point, None of the women in the story had been portrayed in a particularly sympathetic or flattering light. And some of it was really dismissive and, and condescending. But shortly after that point, I picked it up and said, I'll give it one more chapter. And he introduced a woman character who he actually portrayed as being more competent, likable, interesting. And so I said, okay, I'm, I think we're, if this is the character, this is not necessarily the author whose misogyny we're seeing here. So I pursued it and I'm glad I did because it really is a very intricately plotted, like I said, the plot twists and the, exp the explanations of what goes on behind the scenes in a trial, what the attorneys are doing for what we were talking about earlier about when Keith said people who work 60 or 80 hours a week like attorneys, and it made me go, oh, yeah, because in this book, sometimes, yeah, they're just screwing around. They go out for a three-hour lunch. But when they're in trial, it's like when the trial ends for the day, they have their list of who uh, the witnesses are going to be for the next day, and they are working into the wee hours of the morning finding out everything they can about that person, figuring out what strategy is going to be the best way to approach them, um, there's, it shows a lot of that part where I still don't know if lawyers earn the kind of money they make, but you certainly in this book come a little closer to believing that maybe they do, at least the good ones do. Hmm. It's not a light book. It's a little over 400 pages long. And sometimes you just have to knuckle down and go back and read things over a couple of times and go, yeah, okay, this is, and then this feeds into this, and this ties into that, and this person did this 200 pages ago, and now we've got to remember what that is. It it requires some some mental input and some attention to be paid to really appreciate it. But I found that it repaid that in the end. So the true proof of this will be 10 years from now, if I remember more about this book than I do about the Grisham books that I read 10 years ago. So we can't really say whether Turo is better than Grisham in that sense for another 10 years. You've got to, you've got to reserve judgment, put that on the shelf. Somebody um, mark the date, put it, yeah. set a simple <laughs> reminder. 
when we get to episode 2,756, we can revisit this question. Yes, exactly. <laughs> be like, Pat, what happened in Presumed Innocence? <laughs> do you remember? By that point, I will be so old, I won't remember my own name. So, you know, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll remind you, and then we'll remind you about this book. <laughs> okay, fair enough. <laughs> The other book that I read by him was a much later one was written in, I think, about 2013 called Identical. And it was a much less complex book. And in, in that sense, not as satisfying. It was it was a quicker, easier read, but not ultimately as rewarding as Presumed Innocent. So that was Presumed Innocent by Scott Turow. Excellent. Moving. I will say, as somebody who read them both, like both authors more than 10 years ago, mm -hmm. I have much fonder memories of Scott Turow's books than I do. Just because, like you said, this was a legal thriller in every sense of the word. It was, he did not dumb down anything. And I feel like John Grisham often kind of dumbs down mm. stuff mm -hmm. for his readers. Uh -huh. I mean, I did read his books when I was in junior high. <laughs> Presumed and he was happy I didn't read that you were reading them in junior high. <laughs> I was going to say, we could discuss at length because I really thought that The Client and The Firm were excellent books. And his later stuff, I didn't love quite as much from John Grisham. But I really enjoyed both of those and can tell you lots of things about them. But part of that is because they were both made into movies. movies. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I read. Presumed Innocent is also a movie both books. with Harrison Ford. Yeah. I looked that up and I'm, and it's like. You and can, I, you I can read that it, and loved to, that book to, too. Yeah. But I can't imagine that they have a tenth of the detail and the depth in the a movie. The movie is very dumbed down. Yeah. Too. Like, I mean, the movie is not. I read the book after watching the movie because I felt like there was probably a lot more to it. Mm -hmm. And there was. All right. Well, I'm sure we'll have a discussion about that on our squad page too. people defending. <laughs> and as a matter of fact, one of our Patreon members, Morgan, is uh, an attorney. So I'm sure she might have something to say about that. Oh, I would, yeah, I would love to hear an attorney's take on yep, these. Yep. Okay. So Keith. What have you got for us today? So the book I read this week is called Fairy Tale by Stephen King. What? <laughs> I'm sorry. Did you That's... just say Stephen King? I'm That's so surprised. Romance. I'm very, yeah. very interested to hear your thoughts on this. I'm. See, I picked it because I really, really liked it. This is the kind of Stephen King I like to read. And I know Martha didn't especially care for it. And um, it was funny because I, I, Mr. Keith and I both listened to it on audiobook, and Mr. Keith had already read it. So he, he told me when the parts were coming that he thought turned Martha off. It was kind of adorable. <laughs> One of the things I keep saying to people after I, I kept saying to people after I read this was because, was that this is a love story for a dog. I mean, that is what this whole book boils down to. It is seriously like this really, really long love story for a dog. So if you like dogs, I mean, and the dog, okay, let me just say, yeah, it's probably a spoiler, but it's a good spoiler. The dog doesn't die. So if you're one of those people, like I couldn't listen to this book without finding out if the dog was going to die. Because There's a website for that. 
And there is a website for that. And luckily I had a dude sitting next to me that was like, oh yeah, the dog doesn't die. And I was like, okay, now I can enjoy myself. This book is about a 17 year old kid. His name is Charlie and he's pretty normal kind of high school kid. He's like good at football and he plays baseball and he's real good at them. And he's like an average student and he works hard at school because they don't have a lot of money and he wants to go to college and he knows that he needs to do something to be able to make the money for that. But when he was 10, his mother died in this really bizarre accident um, walking home from like a chicken place and his father just lost the plot and kind of just really fell hard into alcoholism. So Charlie grew up really, really quickly. Um, when he was 10, he pretty much knows how to take care of himself. He's like an old soul because, um, you know, he had to do a lot of stuff because his father lost his job and just really, really fell hard. Now, now it's like present day. He's 17. His father is um, sober now. But um, Charlie is this really good kid. And one day he's walking home from school and they have like a, you know how every neighborhood kind of has the Boo Radley house that's like kind of like, it's just got some weird loner person living in it. And everybody has stories about that house and the weird and it's kind of like that haunted house that you don't go near and you kind of stay away from well he hears this dog kind of howling at this house and so when he goes to check um there's this really old man who lives there and his name is mr bowditch and everybody kind of knows about him because he's this cantankerous cranky old man that lives in this house um that's cut just real creepy and when he goes, he finds out that he has fallen and can't get up for like, you know, lack of a better way of saying it. So he's in a bad way. And Charlie just, you know, calls the authorities and helps him out. And when this man, this man and his dog, Radar, who's this huge dog, they have this amazing relationship. But they're like the only things in each other's lives. Mr. Bowditch and his dog Radar. And Radar's very old. And Mr. Bowditch's whole thing when they're taking him to the hospital is like, you know, I can't go because uh, what's going to happen to my dog? So Charlie kind of becomes the caretaker for this dog. And he then builds this really special relationship with Mr. Bowditch. I mean, he basically kind of lives in his house and takes care of his dog. When Mr. Bowditch comes home, uh, he has all sorts of things he needs to do, physical therapy. He's really hurt himself. Um, and Charlie becomes kind of like his caretaker almost. I mean, he has to give up a lot of stuff. Like he gives up sports and everything to take care of this man. And he really just does it out of the goodness of his heart. Um, and if you've read Stephen King, I think one of the one of the issues that i sometimes have with his writing is that he will write and it's a good halfway before you get to what the actual story is about and that's very true in this book so you have to kind of go into you have to almost go into it knowing that this book is going to completely turn around at some point 
And it's called Fairy Tale because Mr. Bowditch has this shed in his backyard and all sorts of weird, like, sounds come from it. And Mr. Bowditch will, like, go into it sometimes and he has to take a shotgun. And when he comes out, like, he's injured. And so you you basically know that there's something weird in the shed. And what's in the shed is, like, this portal to another land kind of thing. The relationship between Mr. Bowditch and Charlie is just amazing. And that's only like half of the book. And then Charlie's relationship with this dog. The dog is very old. Poor Radar. Like often she like can't come upstairs and they just keep doing all these experimental things to make her better and nothing. She's just really old and her body's failing. And so the whole point of this book is that in this portal to another land, you know that somehow it's going to help this poor dog radar to be better. But you have to spend a long time to get to it. <laughs> I don't know if that's why Martha didn't like it or not. I, I think it's better if you know it's coming. <laughs> but I absolutely love Stephen King books. Like The Talisman is my favorite book of all, like one of my favorite books of all time is my favorite by Stephen King and Peter Straub. It's a lot like that. There's a lot less horror and creep, like it's weird stuff, but not exactly creepy stuff. So, I mean, it's not like the kind of jump scare, kind of I'm afraid to read it in the middle of the night kind of stuff that Stephen King can do. So if you're new to Stephen King or you don't particularly like the gory, horror-y kind of Stephen Kingness of it all, this is a really awesome book just because it's still done by him. It's still his amazing writing style. You still get sucked in by his storytelling. It's more like an imaginary fantasy tale than like, oh, that ghost is going to kill you and now you're going to die. Like, and creepy, creepy. I really liked it. It's one of my favorites by Stephen King. And that, again, was Fairy Tale by Stephen King. I think we should have a mini episode and discuss, Keith. Because <laughs> like a Patreon Because I can talk, for, I can talk for a while about that one. There is a little romance, which is which I kind of like a very tiny romance. That's but not I it. I thought, oh, Martha probably hated this part. No, that's not it. That's not it. <laughs> All righty. I have no idea how to pronounce my author's name. You would think that I would have written it down phonetically because I did listen to the book, but I did not. This week, I'm going to review Chain Gang All Stars by Nana Kwame Ajay Brenya. This was another one of those books that was, it was really, really a hard read. In fact, when I first started listening to it, I really did not think I was going to continue because it's really not the kind of thing that I enjoy. I don't enjoy reading things that are too plausible. And I think based on our society, this is just too plausible. Oh. It was brutal. Mm -hmm. uh, the brutality of this book, it, it was difficult to read because of it, but it really wasn't all that out of the ordinary for some of the things that happen and have happened in this country. 
of course, there's an underpinning throughout the whole thing of racism. The basic premise of the book is that it takes place in a dystopian future. And there are certain inmates that are, I don't, I'm not really clear on the exact way they end up being in the program, but the program is called CAPE. And that is Criminal Action Penal Entertainment. So basically these chain gang prisoners are, and here's the other thing I had a hard time with imagining. I I don't really know that much about chain gangs. So I I pictured in my mind, and I'm probably wrong, but I'm going to go ahead and, and go ahead and say it. I think they're chained together during their journey. And they have to go from place to place. But I think it's kind of random. Like they're, they're going across big expansive places. And then they get picked up and taken to their next match at some point. When you're listening to an audio version of a book like this, it's very hard to keep track of details like that. Because you really can't go back and look at it. And it was a difficult listen. Because... There was a lot of dialogue in the beginning between the prisoners. And it took me a while to sort of get used to that whole, because they all have nicknames. The story really centers around two women, and that would be Thurwar and Stax. And you can tell that there is a very deep relationship between the two of them on a bunch of different levels. Of course, it's a physical thing as well as just an appreciation of each other based on their prowess as fighters. So you see a lot of interaction based on that. You also, the other thing that was difficult to get used to is their weapons are named. And it took me a bit to kind of figure that out too, is like they talk about their weapon like it's a person. Now, the, the reason that this is such a brutal thing is that when they do compete in these matches, they fight to the death. But based on the rules, they only have to fight up to a certain point and then they, they, they've earned their freedom. Well, in the story as it's written, you basically learn a lot about the different prisoners. You learn a lot about the people who are protesting on the outside, because of course there are people who think this is brutal and horrible. And there's a bit of interaction going on in, in some ways with the crowd and the prisoners in that at one point, one of the crowd members passes Thurwar a note. So you know that there, there are people fighting for them on the outside you also see a lot of scenes like there's a, there's one particular scene where a woman, she's really excited about this job as a sportscaster and it's her very first day and you see her, you know, when they, when the camera goes to her, she flips on a dime and starts a tirade about how awful this is. It's like she's been waiting for this job her whole life and the minute she gets on the camera, she puts all of it out there in protest of this system I think there like I said there's a lot of there's a thread of racism that runs throughout 
that brings our memories of the past of the U.S. to forefront a lot. And so you can see how it could end up this way if people, certain types of people get their way. And it's not all, race isn't the only thing that puts these fighters out there. There are a few white supremacist fighters in there as well. And so you see that interaction. But you also see them behaving as a team, even though they're all criminals and they're all murderers. It was a brutal book to read. But once again, while reading it, I was thinking, this is the kind of book that they should teach in school. Because it brings up a lot of stuff and it's powerful. The ending was fantastic. I went to a bookstore today and bought a first edition copy of this for myself because it's going to be huge. I didn't give it five stars for some of the reasons that I mentioned before because I had a hard time getting into it, into the audio, but I think I'm going to try reading it again in the hardcover form and see how, how I feel about it then because I think it deserves that second look. Okay, and that is Chain Gang All-Stars by Nana Kwame Ajay Brenya. Is it all women? Is it like... No, it's not all women. It's just that the two women that are in the forefront are kind of the main characters because the other thing that's really interesting is that people on the outside are rooting for certain cast members. They're their favorites. So they're famous. And people are wearing their faces on their shirts and they're they're shouting for them and they're huge fans. But these people are prisoners who are going to be killed. So it's just like this weirdest feeling of I mean, one of them has a one of them has a tagline that she screams when she goes into the uh, into the ring and it's suck my dick, America. So, yeah. you know, you see the you see people with that merchandise and whatnot. It's it's just yeah, I can see this movie. If it are It sounds like I feel like I saw Roller Ball movie. and the Running Man. It really Thank does. Thank you. It I really, was like, I feel yeah. like I've seen this movie yeah. kind of. <laughs> yeah, I mean it it has the elements of a bunch of different things that I've read over the years, but it's all like in one big brutal baby. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So yeah, it was it was a very powerful read, and I would not recommend it for people who don't like violence because it, that's basically all it is. It's violence, and it's horror, and it's murder. And But sometimes you have to look at things that are ugly in order to see what might happen if you go too far. <laughs> what a way to end, huh? <laughs> Yippee-ki-yay. <laughs> yeah, I got nothing on that one. Yeah. Thanks for bringing that room. I know, I know. I probably should have gone in Heck. the middle this time. I read a nice book about a dog. It's okay. While well, we've all been sitting here, I've been sitting here staring at my shelves, going, "Which books do I not want to keep?" Like, See, we want to. Yeah, I mean, what it does when you when you read that article, it causes you to examine your behavior. It's not that the I thought the article was brilliant because obviously it was not. Once again, the article that we're discussing, it, it was posted on Facebook today, or maybe yesterday, on Book Riot. It's a, 
I think the title was something about overconsuming. Is can you yeah. overconsume books? Well, you know how well, we feel about it. We are all massive consumers of books. We just do it in such a way that I mean, obviously none of us has gone completely broke. Speaking as a spouse of an author, buy the book. <laughs> well, obviously, you know, if there's a book that you like that you would like to read, buy the book. But when you do that every single time and you end up with a mountain of books that you don't even like, at one point you have to examine your behavior. It, and I think that's what it comes down to is you make choices based on yeah. your reading life. Okay to let go of things that are not for you. Yeah. Or things mm-hmm. that are not for you anymore. What I did, this is just an example, okay? I really love mystery novels. And when I was living in Casper, I had several favorites because I really like British murder mysteries. And I love Martha Grimes and I love Manette Walters. And I went in, I kind of went a little crazy and collected all the hardcovers of these books and they've been on my shelf for years and I have never (laughs) read them again. And it was like, why am I hanging on to these books? Yeah, they're great. I really enjoyed them, but am I going to go back and read them again? No, I'm not. So I need to let go of them and give somebody else a chance to experience this. And if they don't want them, then I don't know what else to do. It seems like you're, like a library should be a very fluid collection anyway. You could you read things. There are a few things you want to keep because you can refer to them. But there's nothing wrong with reading something, enjoying it, and then passing it, whether it's through a library sale or gifting it to someone else mm-hmm. or picking it out there in a little free library for some crazy lady to steal or whatever it may be. <laughs> but... <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't see that as a reason to not buy books. No, Just no, no. And and I don't let them pass through your hands and on. It's it's not that I would suggest not buying books. If that's the way it came across, I didn't mean it for to come across that way. I'm just saying that in the past I have purchased many books that I've spent m- lots of money on them and got them home and discovered I didn't like them. So Then I got discouraged for a while of reading Mm -hmm. because I spent this month, I made a bad choice. It's almost like it's a poor reflection on me because I didn't choose the right book. And here I spent $25 on this book and it wasn't something that I liked. So I make poor choices is what it came back to me as. (laughs) Mm. So it's almost like, and then when I started doing what I do with the library, I would read the books and then buy the ones I like. So it, I think it comes down to the personality of, you know, obviously I buy books to support my friends who are authors. And obviously, you know, I do try to make those distinctions, especially if it's a brand new first time author, I'm much more likely to buy it if I liked it. Or you just hit up the free library or the library sale every year and get them real cheap. Yeah. That's pretty much what I do. I just realized sitting here that I think I never finished the series, The Witch and Wizard, that James Patterson did, like, when he first, like, dips his toes in the YA. I don't remember what was happening in it. I vaguely remember, like... You lost me when you said James Patterson. Oh, well, this was before he was, like... I mean, (laughs) he was James Patterson at this point, but... Yeah. 
Wait, you know but what? But what also killed me is he changed the cover of the thir- of the oh, third or fourth geez. book, and now and and it just it's up there on the very very. Just so you now. know, he did no such thing. He put his name on it and took money for it. He did nothing with those books. That's fair. Which is yeah, why he bugs the shit out of me. It was a good series though, but I never finished it. Not because think. of him. No, no. Whoever that's, wrote it. That's whoever an, else I think that's a whole other discussion for another time we really should just talk about james patterson because you know there's no way he can write 20 books a year it's just not possible i think if i were to die being crushed by an entire stack of books that would be a really fitting end for this book girl (laughs) i'm pretty sure there's at least one criminal minds about that They would be awesome. I mean, if I was going to die, that's the good way to go. I'd want to be killed by the thing I loved the most. <laughs> I don't know. There's a lot of pointy yeah. edges on those books. That might be real. That might painful. hurt. Yeah. Yeah. It's probably kind of slow, too. Yeah. yeah I guess kinda, I didn't think that like through, did I? But it would, it would be like the modern day, like, pressing of the witches. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, well, you know, I have been called that a few times. So, <laughs> right. yeah. Yeah. I don't think I'd want to die that slowly. My dad, when he built my bookshelves, we always say my dad's like the king of overbuilding. I could probably feel fairly confident that if I could take one shelf out and just crawl into my bookshelves, that they would probably withstand like a tornado because they're like so sturdily <laughs> built into the wall. That that makes an interesting idea, Megan. You could have a panic room built behind your bookshelves. That'd be freaking awesome, wouldn't it? Nobody would ever think to look there. Nobody ever looks at the books. That'd be like the Oklahoma equivalent to Narnia. Where's your tornado shelter? Oh, just pull the bookshelf out. (laughs) (laughs) That'd be actually a really cool idea. I love that idea. The only bad thing about that is then your books wouldn't be protected. So, no, that's out. This is when you go to Goodwill, buy the faux book front, and then put all of your books in the tornado shelter with you. (laughs) Nice. Yeah, so you have like a little little um, book cave with a bank vault full of books. Yeah, but it's your tornado shelter. It seems like a great plan, honestly. <laughs> I have to keep all my books in case there's a zombie apocalypse and then the power goes out because I have billions of books on my, my Kindle, but only, I don't know, 600 books in person so do you think 600 books is enough to get through the first part of the zombie apocalypse at least until they fix the internet i would guess i mean but they never get the internet fixed in those movies years it depends on whether you approach your reading as a lazy girl job or a real boomer (laughs) mentality job Yeah, I think in the zombie oh, apocalypse. That's a way busy. to bring it back to the front, Pat, and that's going to do it for Three Book Girls. Can't get enough of Three Book Girls? Check them out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Follow them on TikTok, YouTube, and check out their website at threebookgirls.com. And join the group Three Book Girls Tribe on Facebook. If you really love them, share the podcast with a friend or join them at one of their live events. Three Book Girls, a Steel Trap production.